This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and we have something of a bombshell to unpack. The liberal NDP deal that will keep Justin Trudeau's liberals in power until 2025. Who wins and who loses here? The quid pro quo is apparently movement on pharmacare and dental care. Does movement mean getting it done? And how will this affect voters who supported the NDP because they don't like the liberals? And how will this affect the conservatives who are calling it backdoor socialism? Will it change the leadership race? Let's get to all that. But first, let me give you the numbers because we want to know what you think. Do you think this is a good idea? Are you just shaking your head about it? What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hey, good afternoon. Hi, Libby. Let us begin with Charles. So uh, is this a good thing, and do you think it was a necessary thing? I think it's a good thing for Jagmeet Singh. It's a big achievement for him. certainly puts him now in a more relevant position. It does give Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, some time to build his legacy, try to change his perspective, possibly exit in his own terms uh, as he proceeds forward. I, I think uh, I think he may be thinking about what to do next, and I think he also mentioned that in his uh, response, um, although he said it would be relevant and, or he'd be involved in some capacity. But I think this is an opportunity for the party to rebrand itself. What does it mean, though, for transparency and accountability, will they be able to achieve this uh, agreement for the for the full term? We'll see. I know that egos get in the way. There is no cabinets for the NDP. They're not really in power, but they are holding them, or at least trying to impose themselves uh, in, a, in a more uh, forceful fashion. It certainly is the case with minority governments that I've been involved with. The NDP did play a role. And Jagmeet, I think, is going to come out as a winner in this. Well, uh, you know, you mentioned your government, but I remember that your government promised the NDP, uh, among other things, lowering auto insurance rates, and uh, they just didn't follow through on it, and it, that didn't well, help the NDP. Well, be careful now. We did put a lot of initiatives by which to try to lower those rates, but it is a, it's not a government-run situation. We can't force companies to go bankrupt. We can demand them to find ways to save and provide those savings across, which we did put forward and we did put some measures in place. But yeah, we uh, we couldn't meet the requirements, and in fact, it's gone up since. Oh it yeah, hasn't even gone down. It's... We did at least table something. But what the NDP wanted wasn't just that; they also wanted uh, wanted a financial accountability officer, which we put in place. And uh, when it came to dental care and pharma care and, uh, and education and so forth, we already were advancing those causes, but that's what they're using today as the means by which to put, uh, to put uh, Trudeau on tap, is to provide for this pharma care and increased universal health care. Well, yeah, and that's presumably something the Liberals want. Uh, Karen, uh, Charles has one view of it. I've, I've heard people parse it a completely other way and say that in, in these kinds of agreements, the junior partner ends up uh, as the one who is less relevant. It lowers his profile. It annoys some of his voters. How do you see it? Well, you know, tactically, I think it's um, an interesting move. My guess is that the budget is going to come out. Well, we know the budget's going to come out in, in the next couple of weeks. And my, my guess is it's got a lot of spending promises in there. And in order to shore up support for the budget in advance, uh, the Liberals proposed this um, 
proposition to the NDP. And, uh, you know, I think while it gives, I mean, Jagmeet Singh will never have more power than he has now. I mean, or in a minority situation, I shouldn't say now, because if it continues in this minority role, he'll continue to be able to leverage power in a way that he wouldn't if he was in the opposition benches. But, uh, you know, I do think it is a, a concerning situation for how Parliament operates, which has always been, you know, which has been something that's been under scrutiny for some time in terms of the, the role of Parliament and whether it's actually fulfilling its role and mandate to the people who elected it. And it just, it, um, it, you know, it's a minority government. The government has to put together the coalition that it needs in order to continue to govern. But this type of formal arrangement is not typical to the Canadian public. And so I, I'm not sure... I mean, we'll have to see how the tea leaves unfold. I think it will be advantageous for the Conservatives once they get a leader because they won't be having to argue against the NDP and the Liberals. They'll be able to target um, their opposition to to both. And I think that will ultimately serve the the Conservatives well. John, uh, how will it affect the Conservatives according to you? I think Karen is right. I think it, it does allow for the Conservatives, once they pick a new leader, to have sort of at least one you know, um, coalition to go after versus the separate one, because I think anything that's tied to the Liberals is going to be tied to the NDP. So I think from that perspective, it's it's good news. But I, I would say that, you know, from a, from an overall win, I think it's a short-term win for, for Jagmeet Singh, um, because, of course, he's getting all the attention, and, you know, he's one that sort of, you know, is getting the Devicare and, and, and Pharmacare and others sort of elevated to, to the headlines now, because obviously they've always wanted it. The Liberals have never talked about it. It wasn't in their last uh, election campaign or throne speech, um, or, or quite frankly, probably wouldn't have been in this budget had it not been for this deal. So I think from the, from, from the perspective of a win, it's a short-term win for Jagmeet Singh. But in the long term, though, Liggis, we've seen in other coalitions, what happens is, is that the lesser party, you know, gets the attention sort of day one or for the next day or two. But over the long run, I think it does the NDP a disservice because what will happen is the, all the limelight, all the decisions are being made by the prime minister, by the liberal government. And, you know, and the NDP will try to say, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, this is because of us, because of us. But at the end of the day, Canadians are going to see the liberals are the ones that are putting forward the legislation, are putting forward the bills. So I think it's, it's something that the NDP should always be careful of. We've seen coalitions in the past where this has happened. So it'll be interesting to see how in the long run. But there's no question this was not needed. There was no, we didn't, we, there was no problems with respect to anybody being threatened by an election. The, the NDP supported the Liberals on the John, uh, John uh, do you think it'll, it, it'll affect the leadership race? I mean, people are pointing out, would Jean Charest really want to wait at least three years and uh, other issues like that? Do you think it'll have a direct impact? I think it changes their, their narratives. It certainly changes the narrative for Pierre Paulduff, who started off his leadership campaign by, by having the tagline Pierre Paulduff for prime minister, obviously thinking that he was going to win a leadership vote and, and be right into an election potential. Now it's three years away, so he's got to change that into, into a different type of, you know, he still wants to be prime minister, but it's going to take at least three years. So it'll have a bit of a, a bit of an effect for sure, Libby, on, on the leadership, but it, but allows them to have a bit of a target now. Uh, with, with just not just Justin Trudeau, but now Justin and Jagmeet Singh as a, as a coalition, as a team. Uh, Charles, you know, it was interesting. Last week, you pointed out that Justin Trudeau's time may be up shortly. He's had three terms, and that's usually when the people start getting tired of their leaders. But by guaranteeing that he stays in power longer, doesn't that just mean that the inevitable backlash against the government will last longer? I mean, I'm thinking about Stephen Harper in power for 10 years. Well, I mean, it allows Justin to try to rebrand, try to improve the legacy that he'll leave behind. Right now, he's tainted with certain issues. He's done a lot of good things, too. I guess it's where, depends where you stand. Um, now, those that are a little bit more cynical will say it's a good way for those that were elected in 2019 to get their pensions secured by 2025. Um, but I don't think that's what just what's driving Trudeau. I think what's driving him, what's making this thing happen, is that he'll cite the national priorities and he'll cite the war in, 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 um, in, 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 uh, with, between Russia, and, and he'll cite those things by which to coalesce and, and to enable us to have greater strength as we move forward. But I think it's also him to, to, to give him that opportunity to, to leave on his own terms. Mm-hmm. I think that's partly. And I, and I believe, and I, and I agree with John, I mean, this is a good pickup for Jack Mead right now. 
Um, but I worry about increased uh, taxes and increasing in cost of living. I worry about the increasing costs that are going to be coming forward. I mean, one of the reasons Ontario didn't proceed and the reasons that the federal government didn't proceed with universal child care, I'm sorry, universal dental care and pharma care, is the price tag is huge. And and it was our government that brought it forward in the first place, and, and, and then Eric Hoskins took it up to the feds, and they shelved it for the moment because of the cost. And I worry about what this means as we go forward. Well, uh, and it's it's interesting that you mention that because it comes as we have this huge pandemic debt and... Uh, uh, and I don't want to scoop my uh, back half segment, but, you know, there it looks like we may finally pony up in terms of defense spending, uh, which we have not done. So all of this at once, you know, <laughs> we don't have all that money. And those are priorities, too. I mean, it's how which ones come first. And uh, boy, our defense spending is. It's a shame. It's, it's, we don't have anything to offer the world in that respect and to protect ourselves. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. How do we support the budget? How do we, we have a structural deficit right now. It's only getting worse unless we have proper sources of revenue. And those revenue sources mean more taxes. And uh, that, that's an issue. It's going to be an issue for us as we go forward. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the conservatives, John, you know, uh, I don't I, I suspect that they would definitely be on side for increasing defense spending. But I don't know about the rest of it. Well, no, and I think that's right. Maybe I think that that on the defense spending in, in particular, when we talked about this last time, too, with respect to the G- GDP uh, uh, uptake to two percent. That's something that even the deputy prime minister was were talking about sort of in the, in the next budget they were going to look at potentially increasing that. Now, does this change with respect to this deal, right? Does it change now that given the fact that the spending is now going to have to be towards Dedicare and Pharmacare, where does that put, you know, where does that put the, the, the available funds, uh, you know, because we don't have available funds, but where, where does that do with, with defense and, and the fact that we still have a war in Ukraine that, that's going on? So that's going to be interesting to see. And, and that debate, I think, is going to be one where the NDP is going to be put into pressure because if the Liberals do decide to increase the defense spending, and, and of course the NDP have already committed to, to to supporting the budget, that's something that is really against the NDP's uh, uh, policy platform and, and, quite frankly, principles. Okay, uh, I'm going to take a call from James in Etobicoke. Hi, James. Oh, hello. Um, great show as always. Um, I'm I'm pleased with the agreement. I think uh, at one point Stephen Harper and Peter McKay united the right. I know it's not the same thing, but in effect, this unites the left. And if you look at the votes, uh, the liberals and uh, the liberals and the NDP combined got 49 percent of the votes in the last election. The Conservatives got 34. So this is a, a good reflection of democracy, and I'm pleased with it. Okay, thank, thank you, you for that. Thank you. The, I would say, if I could add, you know, James, the, the caller has has a point with respect to you know um, the, the voter intention, but. But we, let's let's go back to the election campaign, which we all agreed, you know, we're not all agreed, but we all saw that it wasn't necessary and it was purely a, a potential grab for the prime minister to get a majority government. And the Canadians voted clearly not to make that happen. And now essentially they've got a majority government with the NDP coalition. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it's all, uh, you know, I wouldn't have thought that there was any danger of the Liberals getting defeated anytime soon largely because the Conservatives don't have a leader. Karen? Yeah, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, the other risky element again, for all for the conserv- for the Liberals and the NDP is that um, there's this notional support, yet there's no party discipline. So the Liberals are going to, you know, have to rely on Jagmeet Singh to manage his caucus, and yet the caucus can get quite unruly if they don't feel that they are being um, getting the benefit of the partnership. And so it, it does stand to have a, quite a bit of a downside, actually, to the Liberals. And, uh, you know, again, for the Liberals NDP coalition, you know, anything that happens gets tied to both of them, positive or negative. And so if the Conservatives, when they pick their leader, if they play this right, um, it, it could cause there's a lot of risk in this coalition in terms of spending, deficit spending, um, caucus members of the NDP or not 
you know, members of the NDP not being happy with some of the spending decisions or not enough spending, you know, and suddenly Trudeau is having to answer for NDP upset. And it, it could be, it could be quite complicated and uh, it, it could be fun to watch. Um, but it, it might it might it might have downsides that aren't immediately evident. Well, it'd be fun to watch uh, to the extent that it's transparent. I mean, I would imagine that some of their bigger spending commitments will will be kind of put off a bit, perhaps not to well the promises to the next election, Charles. Uh, that would be the way to do it, wouldn't it? Um, I suppose. I mean, if if I was you know Justin Trudeau in the position that the Liberals are in now. It's a good thing to do. I mean, uh, Karen brings up some of the, the weaknesses and some of the risks that are involved with this coalition, and they're valid. But there's risks still. Even though you don't see them, the, the fact that they're going through, the conservatives are doing their leadership run, they're making a lot of noise, they're putting everybody on edge, they're putting the liberals on edge, um, they have an opportunity to provide some, some greater stability for themselves as they govern going forward. It makes sense for them to do this coalition or this agreement. Because the coalition doesn't really give powers to the NDP, but does provide a lot of moral suasion. They do have a sense of responsibility to the NDP. And that, and that party discipline that Karen speaks of is equally important in the liberal camp as much as it is in the NDP camp. Everyone's got to sort of do their part in order to maintain stability. Um, but these coalitions, they don't always succeed, right? There's always some appeasements that aren't being... Uh, uh, addressed and and those appeasements, by the way, are just as bad uh, as not governing because you don't really do development. You don't really go forward on on more responsible issues. That's what worries me about these coalitions: is what is the priorities now for the governing party as it proceeds going forward? We'll see. Um, but I think it's an important decision that the, that Trudeau has made to secure their positions in in the next few years, not because everyone feels the tension that he's under. And do you think that it'll last to the end of the agreement on paper? Um, time will tell, but more often it only lasts about two years at most. That's what I've seen from other coalitions <laughs> around the world, not just here. I mean, in Canada, we hardly have had any, right? This, right is a, but, this is actually a pretty big deal for us. Well, uh, but that's usually how long a minority government lasts. Fair enough. But we've got, <laughs> but we now have an opportunity for Trudeau to hold a little bit more assurances with the NDP. Um, it, it gives him a little more cover, I think, than he had in the past. Okay, let's take a call from Stephen Brampton. Hi, Steve. Uh, uh, hello, Libby, and uh, I always enjoy that discussion with this panel, by the way. Oh, great. Uh, but let me just, to one of the previous callers made the point that the NDP and the Liberals uh, secured 49% of the popular vote in the last election, and I'm not disputing that. He, he made the, the comparison between McKay and Harper amalgamating the two parties, and so that was fair game. In my mind, the difference is that Harper and McKay created the new party and then took it to a vote in an election. Yes. In this case, I wonder, honestly, I wonder if Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh took this to the Canadian public now, what the result would be. And that, to me, is a really open question. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, that's that's, a, that's an interesting idea, but why would they do that if the point is to stay in power? Well, and, and Trudeau, Trudeau tried that and, uh, and lost the election. Well, not didn't lose the election, but lost the majority. <laughs> but the caller makes a, point, a good point. The voters yeah. seem irrelevant now because of what has happened. It is still democracy. They're still doing what we voted them to be part of, and that's the govern as they go forward. Uh, but there is that sense, well, geez, my vote doesn't really matter now because this coalition occurred, and I don't necessarily would want Trudeau to be the prime minister. That may be so. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, the caller makes a valid point that many are saying right now. Well, yeah. And it, I mean, I'm sure there are a fairly sizable number of NDP voters who vote NDP just because they are sick of Trudeau. Well, I, I, I would, would say, be, yeah, yeah I, I would say that if, if, if people that voted the NDP had a choice that if they didn't want the conservatives in, and there was a time when the conservatives were leading in the in the election in the last election campaign, the fact that they stuck with the NDP means that they did not want to vote for the Liberals. Some NDP voters voted for the Liberals, hoping that they would they would be in power. So it's kind of not particularly it's disingenuous to be able to say well 49 percent voted for the NDP and the liberal together uh, that wasn't the case if they wanted one party or the other and including the liberals to be in the majority they would have voted that and they didn't 
Yeah, and uh, presumably uh, they also maybe wanted the NDP to be in opposition, <laughs> right? Well, not, not, not have the keys, yeah, not have the bank teller code. Exactly, yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's move along to how this might affect the conservative race. Uh, full disclosure, I do not think 63 years old is is old <laughs> and uh, and looking around the world we have leaders who are a lot older than that it's I think of it's closer to prime time but uh, it's been suggested that maybe Jean Charest would not want to wait three years uh, he's also had a very long run as premier of Quebec do you think uh, that this deal will impact those decisions Karen no, I, I don't think so. I, I, you know, again, Shrey has the benefit of experience, and he's not new to this game. So he always knew that there was, you know, if he's if he is successful in his leadership bid, he knew there was going to be time. And I think time is his friend, to be quite honest with you, because however people are feeling right now, um, I think to the point that you raised, Libby, two years from now, after the NDP Liberal Coalition, it's going to be um, a, 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 another. Um, environment entirely. And I think that that will be advantageous to the, to the conservatives, whoever the leader is. And I think that Sheree is well positioned to seize that opportunity. Um, so I, I don't think that's, that's a risk. I, you know, I, I think the risk is, um, again, time is their friend and the risk to the conservatives is, is how much they rip each other apart in this process and how long do they need to heal the wounds. Okay. Well, now they have a little more time, don't they? And now they have a bit more time. And also uh, something that we don't talk about that much that is totally key, and that is uh, time to raise money. Who Mm -hmm. is going to be able to raise the most cash as a result of this, John? Yeah, and I think that this obviously gives all the leadership candidates, you know, a particular fodder to be able to uh, to do not only fundraising but to sign up members because there's a lot of conservatives uh, or even, quite frankly, disgruntled liberals uh, who who might have been sort of you know not looking at looking at this deal with a bit of a jaundiced eye and saying you know I didn't want that I, that wasn't what I expected so you know now we've got a choice and in, in what we're seeing in some of the polls is that Josh Ray is picking up a lot of disgruntled liberal voters and, and who are looking at him as a potential uh, you know leader so that's something that yeah, I think he might want to capitalize on with Pierre Polovev somebody who wanted to go in there literally win this leadership and then fight an election potentially within the next year this is a bit more of a challenge for him because I think in some ways he's now going to have to retool his his um, you know his his campaign re- regarding that. But I think it helps him with the age factor. Some leaders, you know, it's only a number as as we know, and, and you're right. Maybe 63 is not old at all. Uh, and Charest doesn't even look his age. Like he he looks like a vibrant young young man. You know, uh, you he know, does? If, if you were to guess his age, you think he's probably in his 50s than he is in his mid 60s. So I'm not worried about that. I think he was he go, he went in there knowing that it's going to be a term or two that he was going to be. So. I don't think that have an effect on on anybody uh, from that perspective. Uh, uh, I don't know. Do you agree about Pierre Polievre, Karen? That he has to retool. I, I do think he was he's playing a short game to, to to John's point, and that he thought you know if the next eighteen months there's a uh, an election, then he'd be well poised to capitalize on that. And now with the shifting sands, potentially a longer lead time into the election. New issues are going to emerge. There's going to be new feelings. Um, the truckers protest. The, the negative feelings might linger, but they're still associated strongly with him, uh, whereas Sheree won't have any of that. And so I, I, I do think that it's um, it may not change tactically how he tries to win this leadership, but it's gonna he's going to have to shift in terms of if he's successful in winning the leadership, how, how is he going to manage the next two years? Because he can't just be the attack dog. For the next two years, because that will, I, I think that will erode their path to victory. Hmm. Yes. Uh, nobody's mentioned Patrick Brown, who is also a young man. Uh, Charles, um, how do you think it'll affect that? I mean, the 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 thinking is that it, you know I, either Patrick Brown or Jean Charest, because they're both from the same kind of moderate wing of the party. Yeah, I I, um, I got my bet on Patrick Brown at this point. I mean. Pierre's strength is his weakness, and that's being a loud attack dog. And that's not nation-building when it comes to the time of real leadership. Patrick Brown has that energy and enthusiasm that Josh Ray isn't expressing. And yeah, he's not an old guy, but I don't have the rose-colored glasses that John's wearing. He doesn't look young. 
So <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. He doesn't. His image. And part of that is that energy, that enthusiasm. But Josh Ray is the nation builder. He's the one that I would see majority of Canadians being appealed to because the coalition is bringing the liberals far too left than I think most people are comfortable with. And the conservatives haven't made inroads because they're seen as too extreme to the right. So this race is critical for the conservatives to be seen as representing all of Canada. And something that Patrick Brown has done by having the co-chair named uh, with uh, just recently, and she brings a lot of, um, of credibility, Michelle Rappel Garner, and the fact that he came out with a policy platform for the West was, I, was fantastic, I thought. He did that just now. So I think Patrick Brown is making great inroads. He has great ethnocultural appeal. Absolutely. Uh, and he has the mechanisms and the ability to sign up, and he's doing it right now. He's calling on liberals. Patrick Brown is reaching out. I shouldn't say liberals. He's calling on moderate Canadians regardless of their political stripe, to sign up and make a decision as to who should be your leader to represent Canada, not just a political party. Well, it's interesting, you know, when he won the leadership of the provincial party, it was a huge shock to a lot of people. Uh, John, as I'm sure you will attest. Well, as the the co-chair of Christine Elliott's campaign, I could tell you that we were all shocked because, you know, but again, that's that's Patrick Brown essentially, right? Which is he's always been underestimated, uh, and Charles makes a really good point. In fact, Charles should you know sounds like he's co-chairing his campaign as well. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm but, not. But, but but Patrick, but that's a very good point though, right? Patrick is is one of the key organizers. He works hard, and he does not play partisan politics in the sense that he will go after anyone. Uh, to sign up for uh, for his uh, for his leadership campaign, and that's something that I think could could very could very well bode well for him. Now, comparing Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyèvre in terms of their social media savvy and ground game, like modern ground game, how do they stack up just from that tactical point of view, John? Well, if they would stop, you know, fighting amongst each other on social media, that'd be good. And I know we've talked about that before, but beware, that doesn't hurt, doesn't help anyone, quite frankly. But look, they're both very savvy with, with social media. And that's obviously very key for, for us uh, nowadays and, uh, and in, in the campaign with, with conservative voters. And I think Jean Charest, that's the one thing that people have pegged him, given his lackluster, you know, announcement. Uh, in his in social media prowess is that it's not not up to snuff with respect to the other. I think he's picking up that now, and I think he's getting his team a bit more focused on social media. But for sure, Pierre and, and Patrick have had a really strong social media presence since they've uh, launched their campaigns. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. It's a great conversation, but we're out of time. So I'm giving everybody just 20 seconds, starting with Karen. Uh, in terms of next week and what's going to be exciting, I think it will be exciting to see how Um, events unfold with the reaction to the coalition and then how the the conservative candidates respond to that. Charles? Another race here is possibly the succession of Justin Trudeau, and that will overwhelm everything else as we go forward. So this is great stories, but the big stories have to come. Okay, and John? Well, just to changing tack a bit, just the fact that it's day two without masks, and I'm still feeling very uncomfortable with respect to whether or not to wear my mask or not wear my mask. So that'll be interesting to see how that evolves. <laughs> okay. All righty. Um, that's a whole other conversation. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Uh, we're taking a break, and when we come back, uh, we are going to uh, dig deeper on something I mentioned, and that is the whole issue of defense spending. You know, uh, it's clear Canada could not defend itself from a modern army with modern weapons, and there have been hints that we're finally going to step up and spend some cash. We will drill down on that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
The war in Ukraine has underscored the woeful state of Canada's military equipment. Experts say we do not have the weapons to fight a modern army. And will this be the catalyst for us to finally meet the NATO target of 2% of GDP to be spent on defense? Right now, we barely hit 1.4%. Defense Minister Anita Anand says Canada has exhausted the inventory of equipment in the Canadian Armed Forces that could be supplied to Ukraine. And she's promising to put, quote, air quotes here, aggressive military spending options before cabinet. At this point, public opinion is likely on side. That's my guess. But this comes as we're saddled as a, with a huge pandemic debt. And as we've been discussing in uh, the first part of the show, the Liberals have just made expensive promises to the NDP in exchange for the deal to keep them in power. So people, what do you think? Would you be in favor of increasing our defense spending, something that has not been popular in recent years. Uh, and when you say you're in favor of it, even if your taxes go up, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Dr. Stephen Sademan, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University, and David Perry, President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Thank you so much and welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let us begin with Dr. Sademan. So uh, do you think that this will finally be the catalyst for us to increase our defense spending? I think so. I think that uh, the, the, there was already going to be increases anyway, because there's been promises of doing more on northern modernization. There was eventual a decision on the fighter replacement program. So I think there's going to be more money to be spent, and it's certainly one of the biggest fears that the folks in the military had was that in the aftermath of the pandemic, whenever that happens, uh, to get deficits down, people will be looking at the Defense Department, because that's really the biggest hunk of money out there. And they don't have to worry about that anymore. At least they're not going to get cut. And my, my guess is that, yes, there'll be more spending. Uh, David Perry, I mean, uh, as, uh, you know, uh, just uh, civilians, this idea that that we could not even defend ourselves against a modern army is is pretty shocking. It is, although I think some of that discussion is tending to get um, a lot more overstated than is actually the case. Um, you know, we don't have a military as an example that happens to have a large inventory of weapons lying around that we can ship to somebody else, uh, such as the Ukrainians right now. Uh, but that's in part because we haven't designed their military to do that kind of thing. It is the case that there's uh, several parts of the armed forces that are getting increasingly antiquated where we do need to see uh, replacements. Fighter jets is a new one, uh, is a key one because the planes are flying now are in excess of 40 years old. Um, and so we do need to definitely move forward to deal with some of that recapitalization. Um, there's a big focus and, and need to do some of that from a NORAD continental defense point of view, which is, I think, one of the likely things that the government will commit some uh, additional funding to. Um, but, it, but I think that there's a, a lot of room to have a bit more of a reasoned discussion about exactly where the military is right now, because the sky isn't totally falling. Um, but there's definitely a need for additional investment to modernize. Well, um, one of the things cited is that we lack these uh, shoulder-launched missiles that have been effective in Ukraine. Is that a big problem, Dr. Sademan? I, I don't think it's a huge problem. Now. I mean, we have those equipment. We just didn't have enough for our own military and for somebody else's. Uh, and uh, this is actually amongst the other things that we need that are most easily to achieve because we can just buy it from other countries. It's a less complex procurement process than buying a plane or buying 88 planes, as the case may be. So I'm, I'm not too worried about that. I, and the thing that we have to keep in mind is that when we fight, we always fight with our allies. So we don't necessarily need to have everything ourselves if our allies come to the battlefield with things that we don't have ourselves, like Patriot missile systems, for instance. 
Well, uh, you you mentioned resupplying or buying more planes. It seems that whenever we're on the point of buying new planes or new frigates, the process goes on for years, and then sometimes it gets canceled altogether. And uh, it th- that seems to be more of a political problem than even a money problem. Am I wrong? I think you should talk to David about that. He's the expert on procurement. Okay, David. Um, politics sometimes is a, is a problem in, a, um, in slowing things down. Um, but at the same time, some files, when the politics helps uh, move files forward, uh, the procurement system has been designed to be complicated and to satisfy a whole range of different requirements. And a lot of times, uh, there's not enough direction uh, from the government about how it wants those competing preferences to actually be resolved. Uh, and I think one of the most concrete things that the Trudeau government would need to do if it wants to see that system work uh, faster is actually give some indication that they care about it and care about actually delivering equipment to troops uh, faster. Because fundamentally, I think one of the, the problems that uh, have happened to this point in time from a political standpoint is that successive governments, not just this one, haven't really made uh, procuring that equipment a priority. Uh, and until they actually do so and clearly communicate that out to the bureaucracy and the military, um, we shouldn't expect to see much of a quicker effort. And, and one bit of news about this is that now that we have a Minister of National Defense who had a, in our previous position was Minister of Procurement. So I think we're in the best position we've been in quite some time to have some leadership on this. I think uh, Anand will take this quite seriously. So I think we're in better shape than we were before. But, it, yes, it does def- de- depend crucially on whether Trudeau cares about this and puts his muscle behind it. And how long should the process take, even if we see in the next budget there's money? Uh, how it's, it's, a, it's a lengthy process, is it not, David Perry? It is. It isn't how long it takes. Well, it'll a lot will depend on what kind of things we're trying to buy. So, um, as Steve had said, the things that are more like commodities that are that are made in a factory in large numbers, you can buy those relatively quickly. If we're looking though to build um, some of the things that have been discussed uh, in the Arctic, additional infrastructure up there, given the short construction season, um, big distances, that's going to take decades. Um, there's other things that would kind of fall in between. There's no easy rule of thumb. Uh, but part of it depends on how the government approaches doing so. And there's been different approaches that can add time or, or shorten it. Um, fundamentally, though, you can set up a system as we have done in several different circumstances, like uh, when we were in Afghanistan. We can buy relatively complicated things uh, in under 10 years. Um, but if you don't make it a priority, it can stretch up to two decades. Wow. Let's take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon, Libby. A key thing for everybody to remember. of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So, I mean, our primary defense in this country would be from the Americans. Yes, we should do things on our own, but we've got to remember that 90% factor. I mean, that, that really changes the game. Okay, Pat, thanks for your call. Um, what about the Arctic? Uh, you know, Russia's incredibly aggressive behavior have, has, uh, you know, made people suddenly or maybe not so suddenly wake up to the fact that we, uh, probably have to defend our sovereignty in the Arctic. Well, for, Sovereignty, we need to exercise our sovereignty. We need to do a better job of engaging the people in the north and investing in infrastructure up there. But I want to push back a little bit on this whole notion that the Russians are, are super scary in the Arctic. We've got to remember that most of their investments in the Arctic are for their half the Arctic, that they have their own northern passage. They have a long, long shoreline. And so they're mostly worried about that side of things. And if anything about the Ukraine war teaches us, it's we should not exaggerate the Russian capability for doing things at a distance. So they can't supply uh, the troops in the country next door to them with food, fuel, ammunition, and the things they need to prosecute a war. It's hard to imagine they could maintain any kind of presence on our side of the Arctic for any length of time. Hmm. So uh, are these concerns that have cropped up, obviously, because of the war in Ukraine, are they overblown? I would say that they're, in terms of a conventional military threat from the Russians, I think they're wildly overblown. I think we do need to worry about missiles, uh, that they're developing new hypersonic missiles and things like that. But 
we've been vulnerable to uh, Soviet and then Russian nuclear weapons since the 1960s, and nothing has really changed that. Uh, the new hypersonics mean that we would die faster, but it wouldn't really change the basic reality that our safety is, you know, based on the, the, the closeness to the United States that your caller referred to. We're under the American nuclear umbrella, and anything that's sort of heading towards our territory, if the Americans have the capability to knock it down, they would, simply because they'd be concerned about whether it would hit them by accident or on purpose. So uh, we can't do anything really besides help invest in the uh, northern warning system. Okay, uh, we have got to take another break. Please hang on. Um, we'll be back with more from Dr. Stephen Stadman and David Perry when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about our defense spending here in Canada, and I'm asking people, uh, do you think it should go up? It likely will go up, but uh, how much do you support that? Would you support that if it increases your taxes? I'm going to begin with a call from Rosie in Guelph. Hello, Rosie. Oh, hey there, Libby and guests. I just wanted to comment that Canada has always been a peacekeeping nation, and I really support that. And quite frankly, the evil megalomaniac that we have acting now in the headlines, all he has to do is push a button. If he wants to aim it at Washington, New York, we're just collateral damage. So... I don't really see why spending a whole bunch more money on basically weapons that are going to be useless anyway. Um, Okay. Thanks for your call. That's a pretty pessimistic uh, view of things. Uh, I don't know what to say about that. Um, I do have a question. Uh, It was uh, David Perry, I think, who brought up that the Russians are having trouble supplying their own lines in the country next door. And I've got to say, you know, I'm following the war pretty closely. And when I look at some of the uh, commentary from the U.S., these retired generals, and they're going on at great length at how terribly the Russians are doing. And I you know, I'm scratching my head like maybe that's a little overblown, David Perry. What is your assessment? Well, they're, I think they're running into a lot more difficulty than they had anticipated. Um, I do think we need to keep in mind that there's no scenario that uh, North America is really worried about where the Russians are going to drive trucks into the Canadian Arctic. So we'd be worried about a very different type of potential threat, uh, either air or uh, naval-based, uh, either surface ships or submarines, and really uh, to question about the missiles that they could fire onto targets in North America that could have either nuclear or conventional warheads. Um, so to your caller's point, I think that there is going to be a renewed interest in looking at uh, Canada acquiring uh, some of its own air defense system capable of shooting down different types of missiles. Um, I think one of the things we've seen in the last five years is that uh, we probably need to rethink uh, exactly how much allied support we can count on in all scenarios, because uh, I don't know that the American military is as reliable an alliance partner as it's been in the past, uh, for one, and uh, for a second. I think that we should be looking to develop some more additional independent uh, ability to operate on our own. doesn't mean that we'd have the full roster of, of equipment to do uh, all kinds of operations, but adding some, uh, some increased military independence, I think, uh, is worthy of consideration. Uh, Dr. Seidman, uh, I'm also asking, what's your view about how well or poorly the Russians are doing in this current war? Uh, they're doing quite poorly. Uh, they can still win because they have a large military, but uh, there's been enough reporting coming out of the conflict. I mean, obviously, we're getting a, some, a biased sample because the Ukrainians are providing all the information about Russian failures and not their own failures or Russian successes. But the Russians expected a, a walkover, and instead they're a month into a war where yesterday, in a, maybe inadvertently, maybe they got hacked, but somebody released within Russia briefly the casualty figures, and the Russians have lost about 10,000 soldiers uh, killed, another maybe 20, 25,000 wounded, 
in a month of war, which uh, is greater than what the Americans uh, lost in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq combined over the course of 20 years. This is unsustainable. And when we look at what's going on here, we've been surprised by how little they've used their Air Force. When they've used their Air Force, it hasn't been terribly effective. We would have expected the Ukrainian Air Force to have been destroyed in the first couple days of the war, but they can still fly. Um, that uh, I saw news today that a major Russian military unit might be surrounded. Um, we're seeing uh, a fair amount of uh, troops abandoning their vehicles. Whenever they seem to have any kind of problem at all, their troops seem to flee. Uh, and that suggests the military that's not really ready for war, and they weren't well prepared for it. And this might be due to widespread corruption within the, the military. Um, there's a phrase that was used that, that fuel is the the second currency of the Russian military. That is that when they can't buy something with the budget they've been allocated to, they sell off the fuel they have to get whatever it is they need. And that means that they're, they're, they're doing less tr- uh, flight training because that obviously uses a lot of fuel. They're doing less other kinds of training, which means that their pilots and their tank drivers and everybody else is le- are less well-practiced. And so we see that on the battlefield. They're just not being as, as effective as, as we thought they would be. Uh, and David Perry, does that make Putin all the more dangerous? I think in the current context, uh, it, it makes increases the level of danger because clearly this hasn't gone as well uh, as they wanted, for one thing. Uh, I think, though, that it's also shown us that uh, we don't really understand well enough how that particular regime thinks. Um, and I think that we should be revisiting some of our assumptions about what we think they might or might not do um, in terms of uh, North America and potentially um, taking a action that we think has been unthinkable because it doesn't make any sense from our frame of reference. Um, weren't a whole lot of people predicting that the Russians would be slaughtering Russian uh, spent Russian-speaking Ukrainians the way that they are right now. Um, so those combination of factors, I think, are part of the reason why there's going to be some at least uh, notional rethinking of what we're doing on defense here in Canada in the coming months. And rethink how? Well, to, to revalidate some of our assumptions. I think we've effectively assumed that there's no real urgency about having um, significantly increased ability to defend uh, North America and the continent. We've been talking about modernizing NORAD, um, replacing the North Warding System for a number of years now. It was on a bilateral agenda between President Trump and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, and, and then the last several years, that uh, whole file is, seems to have gone effectively nowhere. Um, I think we need to start uh, putting some effort behind it and start moving it forward a little bit faster, um, or a lot faster than we have been over the last uh, about four years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, NORAD seems to be uh, getting up to the top of the agenda, Dr. Sademan. Oh, absolutely. They, the, this government was working on trying to prepare the ground for, for it even before the pandemic. I remember Dave's organization ran a conference before the pandemic that was trying to breed some enthusiasm for spending what could be ten, you know, ten or eleven or twelve billion dollars on this stuff? So I do think the government is starting to get ready for this. Uh, Anand mentioned last uh, two weeks ago at a conference that they've already laid out a quarter of a billion dollars just on the research. Uh, again, as David would point out, it's one thing to allocate the money; it's another thing to spend it. So it does seem like they're allocating the money. Whether they actually can spend it on 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 the research and the starting points of of doing all this work to build up the infrastructure in the north. That's something else entirely, but I do think that there's new energy towards that. Okay, let's take a call from Murray and Malton. Hello, Murray. Hi, Libby. How are you? Yeah, just a couple of quick points. Uh, Putin lied to his military, and a lot of his military don't agree with what they're doing, so they're just walking away from their equipment. But the other thing is our military, if we went to war with anybody, we wouldn't have enough troops or equipment to protect Newfoundland. Uh, Okay. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Okay. Uh, I don't know that we're going to have to be protecting Newfoundland, but um, as uh, our experts have pointed out, we uh, aren't going to war by ourselves. Uh, Do you have any predictions, both of you, in terms of how long this thing lasts and possibly how it ends? Well, it'll end with a negotiated settlement. Uh, neither side is going to, you know, utterly defeat the other. So they're going to have to come up with some sort of bargain. Uh, and that's why the Russians are shelling the Ukrainian cities right now, is to try to exert leverage over the Ukrainians. That's why the Ukrainians are doing all kinds of stuff, including outreach to us, 
to try to get uh, more ability to to harm the Russians, so that way the Russians give in. There will be some sort of negotiation. There are negotiations going on. It's going to take time. How long that time takes? It could be a day, a week, a month, a year. We really don't know how long it will take, but at some point they'll agree to stop fighting, and then we'll see how much did the Russians actually gain through this offensive and how much they lost. Dr. Seidman? That was what I wanted. Oh, sorry. I just add, uh, I agree with that, that in terms of the likely outcome of a negotiated settlement. Um, it looks increasingly clear to me, like the East and the South, uh, the region that now connects uh, crime, depending on what happens with Mariupol, um, although that city seems like it's getting close to being captured by the Russians. If that happens, they'll have a line of territory between the territory they seized in uh, Crimea in 2014, stretching into the east of the country. Um, and that corridor uh, looks to me like it would be a reasonable fallback negotiating position for the Russians to be able to claim that they achieved something out of this, uh, even though it's quite clearly uh, short of their what they looked to be doing to take over the entire country and replace a, a friendly regime. Um, that looks increasingly difficult. Uh, and uh the other question is, what do you think the impact, and we have only about a minute left, of uh, Zelensky rising to the occasion in this way? How has that influenced the course of events? Well, it certainly led to uh, greater economic sanctions that he appeared via Zoom at an EU meeting a few weeks ago. And according to what people said at the time, that really turned the tail, the tide on how strongly the EU would line up in doing the sanctions. I think he's made it very, very hard for the democracies of the West not to do more, that we have emptied our shelves of, of everything we can find, that there is going to be a lot of financial assistance, um, that we've seen a lot more cooperation than we would have expected a month and a half ago. And a lot of that has to do with Zelensky, both because he's persuasive and because we know that there's somebody to bet on, uh, that it was far easier to support him than to f- support, let's say, the Free Syrian Army in, uh, you know, 10 years ago, because he looks like a good bet, um, that he has been able to make a lot of agile decisions. The, the military, the Ukrainian military is operating really intelligently, uh, and he's been making all the right moves politically to appear to the West as a, as a viable option, and uh, and he's got great popularity at home right now. So it makes it much harder for the Russians to try to depose him. Uh, final question to David Perry. So uh, where are we at on all of this? Just briefly. I think we're at a spot where we're going to continue ratcheting up uh, pressure on Russia where we can. You know, the few remaining parts of their economy that we haven't fully sanctioned, you can expect more pressure on that as we continue finding new oligarchs to cut off from access to the Western economy. Uh, And we're going to continue looking for ways to incrementally provide more military support. And if this drags on long enough, uh, restock the Ukrainians with the kind of uh, weapons that we've been providing over the last month. Okay, well, uh, fascinating conversation, and thank you so much, David Perry and Dr. Stephen Sademan. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, uh, that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.